Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at King Estate with Brent Stone. It's uh, July 29th, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today, Brent. Yeah. Uh, what starts by asking, uh, why wine? Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, wine is uh, an attractive industry for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, it's, uh, at least in Oregon, it's still one of those industries to me that's uh, almost entirely kind of farm to table. You know, you're connected to the product from the vineyard all the way to bottle. Uh, in most cases, we're out in the vineyard the day prior to bringing the grapes in, and you're following that through fermentation to bottle. You're just so connected to the product, and I think when you look at you know the state of kind of food manufacturing today, that's rarely the case anymore. Mm-hmm. So um, I think for that reason, it draws a lot of people to to wine, myself included. Mm-hmm. So tell me about your sort of your background and how you first got interested in wine. Yeah, so um, you know, I started my career as a chemist, so I was kind of came up from the technical side of things. Um, I worked in petrochemical for a number of years, and then um, and then I got into food. I went into the dairy industry, and I worked with a lot of um, it was mostly ice cream, so mm-hmm. um, uh, kind of uh, quality assurance, quality control for an ice cream producer, which was a great job. Uh, you know, who doesn't <laughs> like ice cream? I ate a lot of ice cream. Um, you had to. Yeah, of course. Uh, and that was kind of like the bridge uh, to get into wine because, um, you know, you overlay a lot of the same kind of concepts. You're, you know, you're focused on obviously like flavor chemistry and, and, and things like that, but also kind of the um, the kind of biological component, you know, the the thought of a fermentation with something like yogurt, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, controlled conditions for, you know, what, when you look at what you're trying to do with wine, you know, you're trying to create very favorable conditions for one particular bug, you know, Saccharomyces, while at the same time keeping a lot of the kind of the bad bugs out, you know, and um, it's probably even uh, uh, greater em- emphasis in, uh, in ice cream, you know. Um, so I did that for a number of years, and then from there uh, went into wine. Um, so. Was there sort of a moment when wine became the thing you wanted to do? You know, I always had a pretty big uh, interest and love of wine. Um, and it's just my family has been that way for for a lot of years. Um, my mother's side's from San Luis Obispo, and um, you know, pretty pretty good wine culture all throughout that whole area. And so I had kind of come up with an appreciation for wine. And then once I got into food, and um, you know, I just kind of uh, I'd like to say it was planned, but you know, it just kind of worked out that way. Um, so yeah. So once you decided wine was the thing, how did you? What was your first step into it? Yeah, so University of King Estate. Yeah, so I started my career and have been at King Estate ever since I've been in uh, in wine. So, um, just kind of was referred by a, a gentleman I had worked with in ice cream uh, for a lot of years, and um, and I knew the company well. Obviously, just uh, I was living in Eugene, so mm-hmm. um, had been to King Estate a number of times, and I knew that they were well respected, and uh, you know I had been told by a number of people a great company to work for, and so. Started here again on the technical side, so um, came up through the lab and kind of quality control, and then just uh, went from there. So um, it's been a great, 
you know, if you are going to work for one company in wine, I would, I would very much recommend ours and that um, we do so much here. Um, you know, so we're one winery, but we've worked with probably a dozen different facilities over the years, over my time, you know, whether we've made wine with them um, or some sort of collaboration. Um, the vineyards that we source, you know, I mean, I, I think, for example, this past year, uh, we, we're going to work with 26 different varieties. We're going to make 64 wines. And so when you think about that kind of opportunity and exposure, very few wineries in Oregon offer that kind of breadth of experience mm -hmm. that, that comes with uh, employment here. And mm -hmm. so it was a great great place to kind of fall into and, and uh, you know, continue to enjoy today. So. Tell me about your getting started here, your sort of your first responsibilities here, and kind of your first impressions of, of King Estate and of the wine industry. Yeah, so I came in and, uh, you know, what I had been told at the time was um, while the company was obviously well-versed in, in wine and wine processes where they lacked a little bit of experience, maybe was on kind of the quality control you know, assigning metrics to quality. When you look at uh, all those things I just mentioned in terms of the number of SKUs and varieties and everything, mm -hmm. it can be hard to focus on all those things. You know, it's, a, it's not practical for, a, say, a winemaker to go to, um, you know, we have 3,500 barrels and 400 tanks, and you can't go to all vessels all days and, and really. So you need, like, metric-based kind of quality mm -hmm. systems, and uh, that's where I had had a lot of uh, experience in the uh, dairy world was just... Um, those very things, managing multiple, I mean, I think we probably had seven, 800 SKUs in the, in the ice cream world. And we worked with uh, obviously a lot of different, mm -hmm. um, uh, co-packing is very common in dairy. So you're making products for like the Nestle dryers of the world and, and Whole Foods and those kind of things. So you work with a lot of different entities and systems. So I think a lot of that experience was um, kind of needed or, or sought after here mm -hmm. in terms of putting some of those. So that's where I started, basically came in. Uh, tried to put a quality program together, so instrumentation in the lab, um, kind of lot coding, sampling, things that just kind of more sophisticated quality systems. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did that for probably a couple years, and it was great because I was kind of starting from scratch over there. And um, and I think in your career you like those opportunities to come in and be like, okay, how do I kind of make this my own, and 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 how will everyone benefit from from these systems and. Um, so from there, I kind of got into supply chain here a little bit, and so started working more and more on uh, packaging, uh, which again was, um, you know, it's not probably as sexy as making wine, but it's still fascinating when you look at how much it impacts, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the customer's perception of your, of your product and the integrity of your product. Um, and I had had quite a bit of experience, uh, again, in the ice cream world, working on different packaging configurations, handling those kind of things. So. Mm -hmm. Um, when you look at how much in wine the perception of quality or at least first-time wine purchases are driven by say the look of your label or your package um, it is an important part of what we do I mean I think we'll all say what's in the bottle is most important but um, it's you shouldn't take it lightly mm -hmm. you know, when it comes to packaging mm -hmm. supply chain so I uh, happily jumped into that world and did a lot of that for a few years and then um, from there trans transitioned more into um, a winemaking role mm -hmm. from there so Probably the road less traveled. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so before we talk about winemaking, yep. I want to take a step back to the, we were talking about with the packaging and labeling. So I'm curious huh? what you found uh, in terms of similarities and differences for wine versus ice cream when it came to attracting a first-time customer and what you, what you focused on for, for packaging wine. Yeah, that's actually a really good question. Uh, you know, in food, you know, ice cream in particular, and I think just food in general, 
Um, there's a lot of emphasis on just conveying information to the customer, whether it be like an ingredient deck or nutritional facts, you know, things of that nature, and all of the regulatory requirements around that. So, so much of your focus, obviously there's branding and you work with marketing teams, but then there's a whole lot of boxes you have to check to just get a product on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And now wine, is, as most of us know, you're, you're not subject to a lot of those regulatory requirements. It's a whole nother world. It's more about kind of telling a story mm -hmm. and the romance that comes with um, uh, a customer's uh, kind of relationship or interaction with a bottle of wine. You know, mm -hmm. they want to pick it up and they know um, where it was sourced, where it came from, how it was made, you know, depending on what information you convey, uh, background on the family, um, you know, any number of things, any number of stories you can tell with a bottle of wine. And then there's that kind of tactile, those textural components and embellishments, you know, the, the type of things that you'll put into a wine label that you don't see in traditional food packaging. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'd say those are probably the biggest differences. Um, but that's what's nice. I mean, I, I, you know, wine labels, you know, it's like a work of art when you look at the time that's put into it and it's, you know, cellared for decades in some cases, you know, and so um, it's just kind of a different take altogether. Was there anything in particular that you saw that needed to be changed or that you tinkered with with the, with the labels when you came about? I mean, obviously you're, you're coming into an established brand. So what, was, what were kind of the, the things you wanted to change? Yeah, you know, truthfully, when it comes to the branding, I'll leave that to the professionals. You know, we have a very capable marketing team and the family is, is very involved in those things, you know, how they want uh, Brand King Estate to be conveyed. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of what I looked at was, um, one, you know, can, how do you maximize some of those processes? You know, how do you um, make all those things line up? So you kind of take concepts from, mm -hmm. uh, you know, marketing folks and family and then, you know, can we run those on a production line, you know? Um, how do you maximize some of the things that you want to do that will actually work for the technology that you have, say whether it be labeling or glass or anything like that. Um, so my role was more just kind of marrying that with sourcing our actual production capabilities, which we've kind of recently just um, changed and I can get into some of that. Mm -hmm. But um, so uh, I would say that would be more my role as opposed to just looking at um, specific branding or anything like that. Sure. But, um, sure. We did do a lot of also technical work, you know, trials with various, say, screw cap liners versus cork. Um, you know, we were an early adopter of uh, wine and keg, you know, as for, for by the glass mm -hmm. placements and what does that look like from not only a um, packaging use and kind of carbon footprint standpoint, but also a wine quality standpoint, you know, what what is the customer expectation in the glass and a, a keg wine versus one in bottle. And mm -hmm. so we, we did a lot of look I would say more of a technical look at some of those packaging concepts as well. Interesting, so. interesting. So you talked about the recent production capability changes here. Tell, mm -hmm. me, tell, me, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so this last year has actually been a really big year for us. So we put a bunch of resources into, well, the wine regions in general in terms of you know, again, less sexy things, but, you know, um, chilling capability and, and plumbing and, you know, how we move wine from A to B, just kind of uh, the nuts and bolts of the winery, infrastructure, power, um, um, house air, chilling those things. But then on top of that, we put a lot of money into bottling. And that was a brand new filler we just put uh, in. So uh, Italian Bertolasso filler. And then, um, and that was more about just kind of the, the one we had prior has, it was a great machine, but you know, it was about 30 years old. And so it, I think it, it came in with the facility and it was just kind of, we took a look at the winery and said, okay, what are we gonna need for the next 20 years? And so that was one thing on there. 
Um, but what we also did is we bought a new rotary labeler. Mm -hmm. And so this is a, another Italian model, CNG rotary label, labeler. And uh, that was more about that same branding piece, you know, um, how do we stretch our legs a little bit? How do we continue to innovate? You know, when you look at um, labeling, branding, there's a lot you can do from the design standpoint, but if you can't actually get that stuff on the bottle, um, particularly at scale, when you talk about, you know, a winery of our size. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we really looked at. Um, and so this thing is pretty fancy. Um, it'll do, uh, Anything from seam spotting, you know, where it picks up the bottle, it will turn the bottle, find where the seam is, make sure the label doesn't go over the seam. It will do, um, we introduced five custom molds, all with uh, King Estate specific cartouches. Mm -hmm. um, so that was part of that kind of packaging innovation, but it will also spot those, make sure the label's applied uh, correctly. It will, it'll put neck labels on, shoulder labels on, it'll orient, any number of things. And so when you look at what you can do from a kind of branding standpoint, you yeah, just, there's a lot more capability there. So, sure. um, and we're already starting to push it a little bit with, with some of the packaging design and things we've done in anticipation of getting that labeler here. So. <laughs> Those were, those were two big ones that we've just, actually the labeler's just been online for maybe a month. I think it was coming in the day we were here last time. Yeah, okay. It was coming in that oh, day. Oh, that's right. We've, yeah, we're all very, that's we're right. very excited to go see it. Yeah. So it's ringing yeah. a bell now, that's awesome. So you're, uh, you, you're, you start to develop an interest in, in winemaking while you're here. Tell me about sort of working into the winemaking side of things and, and what, you, what you needed to learn, what you needed to do, and then kind of how you, how you got into that side. Yeah, that's, uh, that's assuming I've even learned it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's definitely a lifetime uh, kind of learning. It's probably one of the first things I realized. <laughs> you know, every vintage is different, and um, it seems like every year you, you learn something new, which is part of probably the appealing mm -hmm. part of the job is, you know, um, it, it just seems like as much as you have kind of planned for what's coming um, every year, you, the, it just forces you to kind of um, adapt and learn. and But... Um, you know, early on, I think I think I felt I had a, a good enough technical background, obviously from from where I had come, and a good enough kind of quality background, but um, where I lacked, obviously, the, the developing a palate for fine wine. Um, as much as I uh, had been an avid wine drinker, you know, I don't know how much of that was as focused as it needed to be. Um, and so that that was what I really spent a lot of time on early on was just those real focused uh, sensory. Uh, evaluations. We did uh, a lot of that, um, a considerable amount in ice cream where you're breaking down, you know, you're tasting by the hour and you're trying to isolate certain components, whether they be, you know, vanillas or um, uh, textural things like uh, freezer burn and, mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that, you know. And so I was familiar, I think, with maybe the sensory of approach and how to grade something technically based on like palate and, and, and mouthfeel and, you know, and some of the same things that apply to wine. but. Um, wine is such a um, diverse kind of product in terms of not only varieties and the number of varieties that exist for wine, but even where they're grown. You mm -hmm. know, Pinot here versus 10 miles up the road is going to be very different. And so um, it takes a lot longer, I think, to, to learn those things and to be very, very competent. And so I spent probably the first couple of years from day one here just focusing on those things. You mm -hmm. know? So a lot of the sensory stuff happens in the lab. And so I would just made a point of uh, uh, kind of being uh, involved in those things. And um, you know, then from there was obviously um, a huge part of, particularly at a winery like this, of just being able to make good wine is just uh, organization, logistics, um, 
you know, when you look at a harvest here, you know, we're going to do uh, 4,000 tons in a year, and that's going to come from, say, 50 different sites. But we can only do so much in a day, and you have things like your fermenter capacity, your different programs. It's not as easy as just taking it all and putting it in a big pot, you know. And so, um, and then obviously you want to maximize quality throughout. So, you know, how do you maximize quality in every single block, every single vineyard program, everything, and make that all line up with what you can actually do here logistically, manpower, uh, labor in the vineyard, um, what you can get through in your crush pad. And so that's a, a steep learning curve there. It's just the kind of logistical piece. Mm -hmm. And one affects the other. You know, if you don't have your act together there, um, you're not going to maximize quality. And so I'd say those were probably the two biggest pieces I focused on early was uh, like sensory and then kind of that logistical planning piece. It was like being like a winemaking CEO. Like you have so much to oversee that yeah. you're like removed from the actual barrel process a little bit. You're, Definitely. You're, 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 yeah. So tell me about kind of the progression of uh, as, as the winemaker here, as a winemaker here. Tell me about sort of the progression through of that. Yeah, the nice thing here, truthfully, is, um, you know, we have a pretty big team mm -hmm. and that has been the emphasis from day one with our with our team is like, hey, it's not it's not any one person. You know, you see a lot of wineries and granted they're smaller, but a lot of the wine it's more personality driven or ego driven. You know, it's like the, it's what the winemaker says and that's how the wine's going to be. And we're like anti that. Mm -hmm. So we do everything by committee, uh, whether it be blending, sensory evaluation, lot grading. And so that. Um, I think that's a great approach and that, um, you know, people have different strengths, different palates, all those things. And uh, to do things kind of like a committee approach, I think is very, very helpful. And so um, because of that, I've always worked with a team here. And so there's currently four of us. And again, it's kind of like everyone, everyone's opinion is very, very uh, weighted equally. Mm -hmm. And um, so um, I think that somewhat helped kind of my transition into the role and that I was, it's a very, it's a pretty good environment for like being able to bounce questions and things off of people. And so, um, but kind of started there and then just grew. Um, I think we all kind of grew together. A lot of the same people and pieces are here that have been here for a lot of years. So, um, I do if that quite answers your question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And from what, I, from what I understand, you've recently taken even another position as well. So, so tell me about that. Yeah, it's been probably in the last year. Um, so kind of have a hybrid role a little bit. So I have the, the position uh, as chief operating officer, but then I've, I'm still involved on the winemaking side too. So I would say I've, I've stepped away a little bit from maybe the um, um, more in intricate or um, day-to-day -day tasks on the seller side and uh, I'm kind of juggling just a little bit of both so more administrative kind of bigger picture things along with the still helping out on the winemaking side so, so by, the time you're, by the time you're done here you will have done everything you'll have had every every possible role here. <laughs> no I don't know about that it's a pretty you know when you look at what we have going on here there is so much I mean from the the culinary side and the, you know with our bakery our charcuterie our gardens our vineyard or you know and so there's so much going on here that um, it would take a lifetime to I think to uh, to really kind of have your hands in everything but the nice thing about being at least where I am currently is um, you're able to kind of see everything at least um, yeah, maybe 10,000 foot level, you know, kind of how all those things work, um, how they all complement one another, you know, how that same farm to table thing I mentioned about, you know, the attractive part about wine, how it applies here to our culinary program, and then how we use that same program to kind of bolster our wines and bring more people here. And so um, even 
from a distance to see it work is pretty neat. Um, and I don't think it's an experience a lot of people get uh, in their career. You know, in, in terms of, we're a lot of things here. You know, we're a restaurant, we're a winery, we're a vineyard, and um, so I think that's uh, again a, a real appealing part of working here. So, how would you describe your winemaking philosophy? You know, we are almost throughout the team very non-intervention, uh, being biodynamic kind of. I mean, that's that's what you're pushing throughout. I mean, so. Uh, we are, and I'm sure this came up in the earlier interviews, but you know, the largest biodynamic vineyard in North America, and that is the whole philosophy of that program. You know, is they want to take one of your wines, and they want to be able to taste vintage variation, and they want to be able to taste this block on this end of the property versus this end, and that's all about just not manipulating anything. So whether it be in the vineyard side with inputs, or here when we're making wine, I mean, we on one of our biodynamic wines, I mean, we don't. Um, we don't use commercial yeast, we don't acidulate, we don't chapitalize, we, I mean, we kind of just use temperature and those wines are going to show very differently. You know, a, a wine from the 17 vintage and a wine from the 18, those are very different wines from the very same piece of property and um, I think at the root of winemaking that was always kind of the philosophy, you know, people wanted to be able to taste vintage. And then just in recent years, it's become more about, it's certain operations, you know, just kind of that recipe uh, for this is, you know, this is how we make wine and this is how we make it at these price points and for these consumers and uh, maybe some of that. It's become more homogenous than it used to be. And so we're kind of on the other end of that where we, we kind of want to still hold on to that non-intervention. And it's okay that every wine doesn't taste the same. Um, and so I would say throughout the company, that's kind of the philosophy. Hmm. So tell me about the challenges of having that that big of a biodynamic vineyard and trying to manage that with minimal intervention. What what are the challenges of the winemaker in that in that amount of that that scale? Yeah, I'd say that's another good question because it is a commitment at scale for sure. You know, like we were we were worried early on, like just because that's what you do in winemaking is you worry, right? Um, and we were thinking, holy cow, like what if we get a uh, tough vintage, you know? And there's a bunch of disease pressure and things. And, and now we've taken this whole kind of toolbox away. How are, you know, are the wines gonna be okay? And then um, it was really Ed who kind of calmed us all down. He was like, you know, I, I forget how he phrased it uh, specifically, but it was like, you know, conventional farming really only came around like the last 80 years prior to that like everything was always organic biodynamic you know these are not new things and people <laughs> made great food and wine for centuries you know and so like basically don't worry about it it's going to be fine and so i think once we kind of thought about that we're like yeah you know he's right and um uh, and i'd say so far i mean we've done it now three vintages and i think the wines that have come out of it have been fantastic and they've been three very different vintages different mm -hmm. challenges so um in the end, I'll give it to, to Ed there for kind of calming us down, and yeah. But, but I mean, it's a good question. I mean, it's a number of, it's a different approach for sure. Mm -hmm. so. Can you give me an example of something that has happened in those three vintages that you've had to kind of work a solution toward, or has it been fairly, has it been fairly easy going so far, or has there yeah. been something you had to find a solution for? Yeah, good question. So we were fortunate in that the very first vintage, 2016, right out of the gate, was like one of the best vintages we've seen here in the last like decade. And so, uh, you know, you could put 2012 up there too. So right out of the gate, we got a fantastic vintage. And so, of course, we were like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. This is, you know, this is no problem. Uh, but then 17, uh, while it was, um, most people were saying kind of like a classic Oregon vintage, cooler weather, wetter, some, some botrytis, you know, more of the traditional challenges that people in Oregon are used to dealing with. And so we were like, okay, so now it's, now it's go time. And um, 
again, we came out of it okay. We just, I think once you kind of, you convince yourself that it's okay to have uh, Pinot come in and it, it might not, it might not hit the target you have in mind for, for bricks or acid or one thing or another, like you're going to be able to still make a, a great wine, you know, and, um, and so 17 was probably the first true test where we were, um, particularly on our property here, where we were making kind of lower alcohol, leaner wines. And, um, but I, I think we pulled it off. I mean, I think, and I think a lot of people buying wine from Oregon kind of expect some of those things. You know, they came out, they were very food friendly, lighter, more approachable. They're just not going to be as kind of uh, syrupy and lush as some of the, uh, some of the other wines that you, that you see that, um, and again, I think that'll come down to just consumer preference. Mm -hmm. So take me through, especially now with your, your new hybrid role, take me through like a typical day uh, in your job now that you have, you're kind of wearing multiple hats. Shoot, I don't know if there is one. Um, yeah, you know, I always, uh, I think just being an operations guy at heart, I typically start there. So I get in in the morning and normally check in with the guys and, um, you know, walk through the cellar, the bottling line, those kind of things, just making sure everything's just going well, you know. and. Um, I I figure like we're a winery first, you know, I mean, that's still our core business. And so um, part of, in my mind, my philosophy is like, that, that's what makes companies great is they don't lose that focus. You know, they, they still realize what got them there and, and we were a winery first. So I'd say that's still how I start my day. And then mm -hmm. from there, um, pretty good team in the office here. You know, I work right across from uh, not only Ed and Jody, but then also our marketing team and sales team and uh, CFO. And, and that's a very, um, again, similar to the winemaking approach, very, very open lines of communication. And so uh, I normally check in there and we all kind of uh, wrap a little bit. And, uh, and then just the nature of any business, um, tackle whatever problems <laughs> might be there, you know, you kind of work through them again. Um, I hate even talking about it in like a, a, a personal way and that um, it does not work with, without all the people. You know, it's just such a fantastic team. The company's done a great job of really attracting great employees and talent and, and that's why it all works. So, um, but, so I'd say there's a lot of just a ton of interaction with uh, people throughout the day and it's different people, different problems each day. But um, again, that's not always a bad thing. It's certainly not mundane. So, sure. <laughs> So tell me about, a little bit about uh, your experience at King of State and, and sort of its interaction with the rest of the, of the wine community here in Oregon. Obviously, it's, it's sort of the big fish and then down here in a fairly small pond. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious how King of State, how, how your interactions go with the rest of the industry, how you feel your role is in the industry. Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. And I think about it all, all the time, really. Um, um, I think there's a couple pieces to it. I mean, I think King of State, while we're one of the bigger wineries, we were also one of the ones to be kind of widely distributed outside of Oregon early on. You know, we were one of the first companies to really um, get out there, and and um, and I think that's a great thing. Like, I don't know how many people I've run into at tastings or something where we're pouring for people, and they're like, "Oh, the first Oregon Pinot I tried was King of State, and I tried it in Florida or North Carolina <laughs> or something." You know, and so I think that the company, and this is long before I was here, did a great job of really setting a great standard for, for Oregon wines. When you look at how young Oregon still is in the, in the industry and, and kind of back then when, when the Kings came here, I mean, very much regarded as kind of like California's little brother or whatever you want to call it, you know, and they still had to prove themselves. Mm -hmm. And for them to kind of make the commitment that they made down here, to your point, so far away from even back then what was, what was the wine industry being so far? focused up north so um, 
And so I think that's one piece of it is, you know, kind of there's, there's still, while Oregon now has grown up and there's a lot of wines from Oregon everywhere, um, I think being still more widely distributed than maybe some others that are just selling, you know, off property, there's kind of a responsibility there because, you know, if we make really bad wines and a lot of people everywhere try Oregon Pinot from, you know, so to me there's like a responsibility to just like make good wine for, for all of us. And I think Oregon's had that reputation for a long time, that rising tide. Mm -hmm. You know, if the guy up the road gets a really good score on a wine, that's good for all of us, mm -hmm. you know. And so um, I'd say that's one, one big uh, component. Um, and then I, I think on the other side, the isolation piece that you mentioned and us being so far down here, um, you know, I, I think it's good and bad. I think, uh, you know, it's forced us to really kind of be very self-sufficient and make sure we have all the right tools and everything here. Um, and uh, at the same time, I think it's still really collaborative. I mean, I think, you know, we're not that far away to where you can't pick up the phone and, um, and, and bounce some ideas off of, off of colleagues. Mm -hmm. and, and Oregon's still very cooperative, which I really, really like. I mean, you can call the guy. Uh, up the road and say, hey, what are you doing this year with, with your Pinot? Or what are you seeing here in the vineyard, this and that? And that information is widely shared. And so, um, so I think you get a little bit of both being down here. But. Uh, what have you seen uh, change in the Oregon wine industry since you became a part of it? Yeah, another good question. Um, it's certainly grown. It was already kind of growing. Like I said, you know, I've been here maybe nine years, 10 years, something like that. Um, and Oregon was certainly well established by the time I got into it. It was, you know, well respected. And I had had a, a bunch of really good Pinot from other producers. And in my mind, Oregon was um, the best place to grow and make Pinot Noir. And so I think a lot of people felt that same way. So I think that reputation has remained. I think um, because of that reputation, you're seeing more outside investment. So you're seeing a lot of companies come from California and elsewhere. Um, you know, the cost of doing business here and land prices and so, you know, compared to somewhere like Napa Valley um, is a lot more attractive to companies and, um, you know, kind of the bottle prices and things that we uh, have been able to sustain are, are attractive. And so I'd say that's probably the biggest change is just um, some of the outside investment and how the industry has grown that way, whereas it seemed even like 10 years ago, it was a lot of just uh, small producers, you know, um, and it still is that way. Um, but that's probably the biggest shift in the landscape would be, would be that piece, I think. And what do you see as you look ahead for the industry over the next decade? Yeah, that is the hardest thing. And we talk about it all the time as a team, you know. Um, not only where is the industry going here in Oregon, but where is wine going, you know. How are consumer preferences changing, how people shop change. And I wish we knew, truthfully, you know. I mean, I think there's a sense that more and more people um, are going to change um, where they buy wine. You know, fewer people are going into grocery stores, and uh, th that kind of e-commerce piece is probably going to be more and more important. You know, it, it seems like in the end you can make a great wine, but it still comes down to access. You know, if you can't get that that wine to the customer, then then that's a real hurdle for your business. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to be a big change. Is just kind of um, not only consumer preference and what options they have for. Uh, you know, whether it be wine or craft beer or now with um, cannabis and some of these other things coming online, but then also um, how they buy those products. Mm -hmm. So I think that you're going to continue to see that change. And I don't think anyone really knows exactly uh, where it's going. You know, I think there's some general ideas, but I think that that's probably the hardest part for all of us to, to figure out is, you know, how, how do you best present your product to the customer or get your product to the customer? 
you talked a little bit about both King Estate's role as kind of responsibility for making good wine and also of the collaboration of the industry. So obviously a recent example of that was the Oregon Solidarity Project. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know your thoughts on how that came together and sort of your role in it. Yeah, so that um, great project. I mean, it was, it was one of those things like a perfect storm. Like if we were gonna go back and try to do it again and plan it, we probably couldn't have pulled it off. <laughs> like we joke all the time. I, you know, he's talking to Christine Claire. Obviously we worked very closely with Willamette Valley. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I'm assuming that the background for this story is probably mostly known, but mm -hmm. um, just um, kind of the, the dime tour, you know, it's a, a lot of fruit cancellations down south. We're already into harvest. We're already receiving fruit. Um, the, the fruit is very, very ripe. Um, there's claims of that, that, that it's tainted and it's not usable and so basically there's a lot of growers that are being left hung out to dry and um, most of which don't have crop insurance and so um, our fear was that a lot of people wouldn't be able to come out of that you know that you're, you're talking about real people and um, they couldn't take a, a hit like that mm -hmm. and so it all came in the matter of like a day or two and then this and this ed king and jim Bruno and those guys deserve credit for it because it was their idea like hey let's let's see if we can get enough people together let's go buy that fruit and let's try and make wine with it problem being you're in the middle of harvest you're already at capacity in most cases i know when i'm at valley was and we were and so you're like okay where if we can pull it off where do we even put it you know and so that's where we called up um Irie and sylvan and a lot of people just to say hey do you have a tank you'll give us mm -hmm. and um, at the same time that you know because it is in harvest the fruits are already really ripe and so you don't have a lot of time to belabor decisions and it's just like hey let's we got to execute and but I joke because I think that's why it worked because if we were gonna go through and we were, how do we make a wine from new vineyard sites with four different wineries and brand it and do all these things that it takes to get a wine to market and, and if we were really gonna do that I don't think we could have pulled it off in that timeline it was just sink or swim and mm -hmm. so Hey, let's get the fruit. Let's get down. We obviously went and tested it to make sure that, you know, this is it was going to be it was sound fruit, and we were going to be able to make wine because we figured, you know, if, if it was truly really tainted wine, and we were going to make a bad wine, and wait, you know, we're not doing anyone any favor. So, like, can we make a good wine? And we made those assessments inside the first day or two, found some tanks, and then we really just kind of figured out the rest as we went. Like, okay, this is how this is how the package is going to look, and this is where we're going to bottle it, and. Um, let's go out, where are we going to sell it? And, but um, again, because it was such a kind of a reactive uh, environment, we, we pulled it off. But it was great. We, we worked with great people. We've had all the growers come up here since. Um, the Willamette Valley folks, we've had a great relationship with. Uh, I mean, I think we knew one another prior to that, but um, it kind of forced us to kind of <laughs> um, work real close together. Mm -hmm. And amidst kind of making our own brands and our own wines, you know, and so, um, that's what was really kind of the neat thing about it is, you know, we were, everyone was willing to kind of put their own interests aside and their own wines to a certain extent and say, hey, let's, let's help these guys out. And um, so it was cool to be a part of, again, a unique experience that you don't often get in your career, you know. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, um, I don't know if, if we could do it again. Uh, like I said, I don't know. Uh, we pulled it off, but um, I, I was just very fortunate to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the, re the reaction to that from both consumer and industry side, and and if that if it foretells something of the future, is it something that you, is that is going to be an ongoing concern now for for the state? Yeah, in terms of the smoke tank. Yeah, <laughs> or, in or in terms of you know how, yeah exactly. Yeah, I think, and again, this is just um, somewhat anecdotal, but I, I don't think the problem's going away. 
you know, um, part of what we were hoping. So as we as we kind of raise money via the sale of these wines, and um, a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of that went back to the growers. But we're kind of hoping that there's going to be um, this kind of research component that comes out of it as well, and that. Um, we would be naive to think that it's not going to happen again. You know, the wildfire season seems to be kind of um, an annual event. And as more areas are planted, it just seems like as an industry, rather than assume it's not going to happen again, we just have to figure out what, how do you manage it at the vineyard level and, and even really at the contract level, how do you make um, maybe growers a little bit more insulated to some of those events, you know, and have it be kind of a, a shared responsibility. And then at the winery level, knowing that you're gonna get some fruit that's, that's been exposed to smoke, you know, what can you really do to mitigate at the winery level? And still, just like you would, you know, botrytis or um, powdery mildew or any of those things, you know, just, just natural occurrences that are gonna happen and just plan for them. And so, I think that that's gonna have to happen. I think as an industry, you're gonna see a lot of that, whether it be California, Australia, Oregon, I think people are actively looking for those solutions. And so I think that's where you'll see a lot of, even in the next few years, you'll see a lot of technology and ideas. And I think that those um, efforts are probably um, ongoing. Mm -hmm. So what do you see as you look ahead for yourself uh, 10 years in the future? Another good question, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I hope it's here. Um, like I said, I. Um, it's rare anymore. I've been I've, I've been on a number of different uh, different companies, different big and small, you know. And uh, to get to work uh, for a family-run company uh, with the family every day, and an environment that is as unique as this is in terms of wineries we work with, varieties we work with, things we do and see every day, just the complexity of this operation. I mean, I think you could spend a lifetime here and and still not learn at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, so. And, but, you know, Eugene is, is where I live and, and it's home. And so, um, yeah, so I hope in 10 years it's here. It's working for King Estate. And, uh, and I hope, you know, we, we continue to do well as a company because obviously that's a big part of making that first part uh, happen. So, <laughs> but, yeah, that would, be a, that would be my preference for sure. And then what about as you look ahead for King Estate? Uh, any in interesting projects on the horizon? Any hopes for the future or concerns for the future? Yeah, so if you know Ed, you know that we're going to continue to innovate. You know, the, the families always, I think a part of it is probably the roots that they have in aviation and, and, um, and kind of they were pioneers there, then came to Oregon, made some bold moves here. And, and so I don't think it's in his DNA for us to just kind of sit idle. And so I imagine... Uh, whether it be branding, packaging, wines, things outside of those, I, I think we're always going to push the envelope. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, that's that's kind of what makes it interesting. So um, I think Brand King Estate will continue to flourish. I mean, I think um, we um, hopefully have kind of gained a reputation as a fine wine producer, and we make a product that's you know a wine that's consistent. Um, vintage after vintage. So I, I hope that that remains healthy and obviously the, the focus, but uh, I, I think you, we, we could probably surprise you um, in, a, in a couple of other areas over the, over the next few years too. So. What advice would you have someone who uh, wanted to join the Oregon wine industry today? Advice would you have for them? Yeah, um, well I think you do one harvest and you find out pretty quick whether it's something you want to do for a living or not. Just. Uh, the commitment that comes with something like that, you know, particularly here and, and um, the nature of our sourcing, you know, it could be a very long, exhaustive 
harvest. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's not just a commitment by you, you know, it's your whole family, you know, I mean, because obviously things are um, neglected at home and so you need a very, very good support base, you know. Um, your wife and kids and everyone have to be on board with, with you being in wine. And so I think that's a, a an important kind of first question to ask yourself. And then, and then a part of it too is you have to be able to, it's a unique skill set in that you need people that are very, very organized and kind of linear thinkers and, and, and technical to a certain extent. But then you also need people that are pretty flexible and that the nature of a harvest is like nothing goes according to plan. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to adapt and keep your cool. And I mean, you'll plan the day out and right out of the gate, it'll be wrecked, you know. <laughs> and so you have to be um, kind of a patient person while also you can't completely fly by the seat of your pants either, you know? So it's a unique skill set, And I think you find out early on, like you do a harvest or two and you realize like one, you either love it and you get the bug and you got a bunch of people out there right now that have it and you know they're gonna be lifers. And then you get other people that are like, you know what, it's great, I love wine, I'm gonna always drink it, but I don't wanna make it, you know? And so, um, but I think really the only way to kind of answer those questions is you kind of have to come see it for yourself. And you can talk to people all day long about the commitment and everything else, but until you actually, uh, I think, do it, uh, that's the only way to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. That's all the questions that I have for you planned today. Uh, mm -hmm. Is there anything that I should have asked that I didn't, anything we didn't cover that we should have? Shoot, I don't know, I think. Uh, I'm happy. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. You got an open microphone, so I mean, you can say whatever you want. At this yeah, it's great. Uh, like I said, I had uh, I had no clue what the interview was was really even about. So um, the best way to do one. Yeah. <laughs> no preparation. Exactly. Yeah. See, that's what, actually what we hope for. It makes it much much fresher. Yeah. Episode. No, it was great. It was, uh, awesome. Yeah, it was good to sit down with you. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today for your answers. We really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.